about history from a whole new context. Welcome to Podtextualizing the Past. I'm Sue Stanfield with the History Department at the University of Texas at El Paso, and today we're talking women's dress reform. You might not have thought of much about the impact of dress and fashion on women in the 19th century, and let's be honest, it still impacts women today. Um, but during the 1800s, women organized around a lot of different issues, and dress reform is one of those less appreciated reforms. I'm lucky to have the opportunity to interview Courtney Cawthon, a period seamstress and a historian. Welcome, Courtney. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So I guess I'm going to start with the big question first. Um, why, why should we study the history of fashion? Why clothing? Yeah. You know, a lot of people think of fashion in terms of, uh, you know, superfluous, like, oh, it's just, it's just fashion. People People now are very obsessed with fashion, but it couldn't possibly be that important, really, right? But when you think about it, as historians, we're looking at, at major milestones. We're looking at policies that were put forward and different laws and battles and whatnot. And that's great for sort of the macro level. But fashion and the personal choice that people took, what to put on their bodies themselves really does reflect their individual mindset. And I like that aspect of it because you get a a chance and a sense of what socially was going on for, you know, not just the men who were doing a lot of the history making, but also for the women and where their priorities lay and whatnot. So that's why fashion for me. I (laughs) study cookbooks. And so I, I get the fact that we find so much about the everyday lives of people from mm-hmm. looking at a lot of these less traditional sources. So that's right. one of the reasons why I'm so excited to get to to interview today. Um, since we are only audio um, and can't show me, I was wondering if you could tell and describe a little bit what a middle class woman's dress from sort of um, underwear all the way to outerwear uh, for a middle-class woman in the antebellum era, what might it it be? What might it include? Well, it's it's a lot. It, it seems like a lot, but almost every piece was very deliberate in its form and function. So starting with the drawers, which are basically sort of like almost like bicycle pants, but, you know, but that length, roomy, but also split down the middle. Um, so they weren't, they didn't have, you know, full support coverage, whatnot, um, which made using the facilities significantly easier, especially when you're talking about yards and yards of fabric on top of that. So um, you needed something, you, need, you needed a way to relieve yourself for a lack of better terminology, um, an easy way. So they start with the, with the split drawers, um, a chemise, which is a, a sort of light tank top, um, you know, made out of, all of you would be made out of very light cottons um, or even a light, a fine linen. Um, and then over top of that, you've got your support structure, your, your corsets. Um, uh, and the corset does, a. not only is it, I, it's a personal annoyance for me, people that say, oh, corsets are so uncomfortable. 
a, a corset that you buy on Amazon today is not fit for your body, you know, but corsets and stays are the same thing. I'll use corset as a generalized term because that's what people know them as today. It's the boning that laces up the back and tightens. Um, having a, I've had a multi-level spinal fusion myself and this, the corsets that I wear every day provide an incredible support and actually make life much more comfortable. You can stay on your feet a lot longer because you have this rigid support holding you up. So after the drawers and the chemise, there's the corset goes on um, and a corset cover over that. And that protects the outer gown, whatever dress you might be wearing. Um, the chemise underneath the corset is intended to keep sweat and dirt and whatnot off the corset because it is hard, obviously, to clean a corset. And so you're getting progressive layers out uh, to protect the outer dress. During the day, it could be a one-piece dress, um, generally of cotton, especially in the, you know, just up to the, the war years. Um, and then usually an apron. Um, a lot of the dresses, though, had elements of interchangeability. So you would have maybe one skirt that was your primary skirt and then two different top pieces, one that was for day and would come up to the neck, one for evening that would, you know, go off the shoulder. So you could go from day to evening easily, you know, work wear to cocktails at night <laughs> in, in modern terminology. Yes. So how often would you wash your, your garments? Honestly, the the chemise and say if they were wearing undersleeves um, with work dresses, those were designed and the drawers were designed to be washed really any time they needed it because they were you know cotton. So it's easy to plunge into your your soapy water or even just regular water and rinse those out. Corsets really didn't get much washing at all. Um, there are different combinations of things that you can put onto the corset to sort of try and uh, alleviate the smell, but washing a corset is nearly impossible. Um, and then the outer dresses, you know, very, really honestly, quite rarely. Um, they use some pretty creative and active prints so that they would hide a lot of, you know, dust and dirt and things of that nature. But that's why they designed all the layers the way that they did so that they weren't having to try and wash these gowns, which, I mean, you're talking anywhere from eight to maybe even 13 yards of material in these dresses. So it's an ordeal to wash those. So you'd want to do that as little as possible. But so, yeah, the, the garments quite frequently. So I'm curious, would a woman, um, I've always heard this legend that um, at a, a university in Texas, they had a, a private dorm when they started letting women in and it only had two hooks. So for your Sunday dress and your change of your everyday dress, and that's all you would ever need. And this was, uh, and the dorm was still like that until they started putting in closets in the 20th century. And um, is that true? Did most women just have like a, a formal dress and a, a day dress? You know, in many cases, that was really all they needed. And as I say, the yardage was um, was so significant that it, it was a huge financial investment. 
Um, so yeah, you'd have your one dress that was a really nice that you could wear to special events or on Sunday going to church. Um, and then your everyday attire. And, you know, you might have maybe more than one of those, but for the general population, that is about right, quite honestly. Um, How do you replace a dress? I mean... I, you know, there are, there are beautiful, um, examples of extant garments in the Met, uh, the Victorian Albert in London of gowns that still exist today. The quality of workmanship was so high that those gowns, I mean, they were trying to make them last as long as possible. Really only the upper echelons were trying to keep up with the stylistic changes um, and even then, when you see a lot of transitions, they're repurposing dresses that they already have and altering them in ways that fit new styles. So you might be changing the neckline a little bit, maybe adding larger sleeve puffs, adding different overskirts or whatnot to, to keep up with those changes. But overall, you wouldn't be doing full gown changes um, frequently at all. I mean, maybe every five to 10 years. I mean, oh, wow. and that you had the resources to be able to do it. A lot of women, especially for their wedding, they, you know, they would do one very nice dress, but that unlike us, I would not wear, you know, my wedding gown <laughs> to church because I would look silly. Um, their wedding gowns were, were just really beautiful, you know, dresses that they could then wear all the time. So, you know, you were, you're trying to minimize the the cost because it wasn't, it wasn't food, you know, it, it wasn't life sustaining. Um, so, you know, trying to, trying to minimize that cost as much as possible. So when did women um, start buying off the rack? Like, uh, when do you quit making your own clothes by and large? Or if you're a little wealthier in an, an urban area hiring a seamstress, when can you go to the, the mercantile and, and purchase something? Realistically, not for a long time. Um, you don't see, you see a transition to for fast fashion, ready to wear and standard sizing in menswear. Uh, at, at the beginning of the Civil War, because all of a sudden the government now had to provide uniforms. So you saw men, unfortunately, the boys were able to go to, you know, their their local shop and um, and could purchase a shirt or purchase trousers or whatnot far, far earlier than women were um, really not, not until after the war. Okay. So much later on. Because women's fashion, they're they're all tailored to your specific body. So for a tailor, like for myself as a historic costumer, uh, it's hard for me. I'll post a picture for a client and say, is this something that you're looking for? I can recreate that to your measurements. But for me to prefab anything is absolutely useless unless I find a, an exact copy of the human that that was based off of and they're wanting that dress. So it would have been a waste on both ends, quite frankly. So um, kind of trying to get to the idea of dress reform itself. <laughs> I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about some of the health concerns about 19th century women's clothing. Well, I mean, aside from a lot of people have heard about the arsenic green dresses, um, using arsenic as a dye 
it, which did produce a really beautiful green. Um, but that was prior to people understanding that arsenic was a poison, um, even using it in their wallpaper. Right. So, you know, but women by and large, as far as our, our beauty and whatnot, you know, I mean, Elizabeth the first was putting lead on her face until, you know, it started to fall off her face. Um, so there are a lot of health concerns with, with the making, what goes into making the garments um, from the dyeing perspective, but stays, um, not, not necessarily were that, that detrimental. Maternity stays, however, which women absolutely were wearing, they were, were, they were tightening themselves into maternity corsets, which, you know, by and large, is not a great idea for a, a fetus. Um, the, the fact that women in during the Industrial Revolution, you know, 1830s, you started to see them moving into factory jobs and these voluminous skirts would get caught in machinery, um, leading to, you know, in many cases, unfortunate deaths. It's very easy to trip and fall over large skirts. And so there's that aspect to it. Men didn't really face the same concerns, but men's fashion didn't change either. So it kind of, you know, got sort of got stuck in a look and, and have basically stayed there. I mean, the three piece suit has been around for a couple hundred years. Right. So that's, I suppose, the price you pay for, for changing up your, for changing up your look. Yeah. I've always imagined it would be so difficult to mm-hmm. get into a buggy, you know, with all of the skirts, like stepping up and not hit, it, not it trip is. yourself. <laughs> There's a great there's a great old sketch that was published of a woman stepping out of a hired cab and one of her hoops gets caught on the door handle and the poor deer is just she's laying out in the street with her skirts over her head and you can see her hoop is caught on the door handle. Um anytime that I have to go out wearing a hoop skirt, it's an ordeal. Like folding everything over. The skirts themselves have a lot of flex to them, so you can sort of fold them all in on themselves. But, you know, getting everything compact enough to get in and out safely, um, I, there's, I think that's probably the origination of a gentleman offering his hand to aid a woman in and out yeah. of a vehicle. Because, quite frankly, she was going to need it. She was going to need the help. <laughs> I was going to say, even wearing like a maxi dress or skirt today, Mm -hmm. you know, if I'm riding the bus into campus, it's like, why did I wear this today? Because stepping out, I'm always convinced I'm going to hit the the hem of the skirt unless I feel like, you know, some old fashioned lady lifting it up as I step. Mm -hmm. And then it's it's never easy. It's very disorienting not being able to see your feet. Yeah. And I think that people lose sight of that because, you you know, you base your, your balance on fully understanding where your body is in that space. And when you can't see your feet, it, it adds a, an interesting new dynamic to everything. Completely off topic, but I have found that problem with wearing a mask. Um, yes, yes, absolutely. I feel like I'm always a little out of balance um, mm-hmm. because... I'm not looking, you know, especially when I'm stepping down off the curb or something, Mm -hmm. I have to consciously think and look down instead Mm -hmm. of having it part of my, my larger vision. So I've noticed that in the grocery store, you know, as I'm checking out, because I do all the grocery shopping, um, looking down and you can't quite see everything. And I end up grabbing at air. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it really, it does. It, 
any any break in your normal field of vision is uh, problematic. So I'm wondering, um, when did 19th century women become interested in dress reform? Well, you know, I think if if I'm re- dress reform in the sense of reform making a statement, you know, we start seeing that around the same time, you know, so women start getting more involved in the social political sphere with temperance movement. That's the first time they really get out into the the public eye. Um, because at that point, women were held up as the sort of bastions of morality, if you were. Um, and so they, they were out and they were speaking about the ills of, of alcoholism. In the 1830s, we had reached our peak of alcohol consumption in this country. Everybody was drinking all the way down to the children. They were drinking ciderkin, which is a watered down alcoholic cider. Um, I mean, it's staggering when you think about how much everybody was drinking from morning until night. Um, and it did become a problem for obvious reasons. So there was a big push by women talking about the fact that alcoholism was tearing apart families. And women were finding that they were developing these voices that put them out into the public eye. Um, But also, in a lot of ways, they were then open to more open criticism. Um, And as one of the other platforms that they were getting behind was the abolition movement. So there's a very interesting story about Elizabeth Stanton, who ended up being one of the forerunners of the suffrage movement, going to London for uh, an abolitionist, a large abolitionist meeting. And she was told, no, I'm sorry, you're a woman and you're, you know, let let the boys handle this, essentially. Um, so she was basically poo-pooed and sent home. And when she came home, that's it, that was in 1840. And, she, you know, I think she started thinking, and she and others certainly started thinking that to have a valid voice, they needed to start by giving themselves, by validating their voice in general. And so that's when you see the, you know, the Seneca Falls Convention. Um, and interestingly enough, Amelia Bloomer, who we associate with the bloomer itself, the sort of the forefront of, of pants for ladies. She was a neighbor of Elizabeth Stanton's. So they were all very connected in, in that area. Um, and the notion of moving towards changing the look overall of, of how women were dressing is all intercur- interconnected with all of these things that they were working towards. So it's very hard to say, okay, this is when women started caring about changing their dress, you know, because they're working towards so many different things and finding that those relationships are connected. And like I say, they needed to establish their validity on multiple levels and dress reform was only one of them. Yeah, it seems like um, it's this amazing moment of synergy, you know, where, you know, like mm-hmm. Susan B. Anthony, who right. wasn't at Seneca Falls, you know, because she starts out as a temperance lecturer and then an abolitionist mm-hmm. lecturer before she joins in. And you have the, the you know, idea that these people are all just interacting and sort of building off of each other. And mm-hmm. so that's why I find that time period for women's history 
so fascinating. Um, so what did the, you know, I know people maybe in the short term only, you know, adopted, you know, Fanny Ride or Elizabeth Cady Stanton adopted this sort of reform dress. Can you tell us what it looked like? Was it scandalous? It honestly, it wouldn't have been considered scandalous <laughs> by standards at all. Um, it's funny because so um, Amelia Bloomer, as I say, she was a neighbor of Elizabeth Stanton's, and she saw one of Miss Stanton's friends show up in the the style was called the Turkish pant, um, very large. What you know my generation, which is not your student generation, <laughs> would call like an MC Hammer pant. You know, it was that large like harem pant style. Had was essentially, for all intents and purposes, a dress that was just sewn around your ankles. I mean, there was not, you know, it it wasn't racy at all. Um, but but Amelia Bloomer at the time was starting a women's only uh, publication called The Lily. And so she sees these pants, these large Turkish pants. She says, oh, this is great. What an, what an amazing and incredible reform. So she publishes it and includes a picture of her in this dress. It doesn't change at all. On the top, it looks very like a dress. Um, and then it has a long coat that comes down to about mid-thigh. So it's all still looking very dress-like. And then the large voluminous pants at the bottom. Um, Quite honestly, I could have t- I could take any of my period gowns now and and sew the sew the bottom of the dress around my ankles and pretty much replicate the style. It wasn't a huge reform, but for women who finally had the freedom of you know not having to worry about getting voluminous skirts out of the way, they they really did feel like it was a liberation in that respect. So they could ride astride if they wanted to. Um, and it was overall, their their argument was that it was safer for them to get around and do what they needed to do. So how did people react to this? <laughs> the la- Many of the ladies loved it. There are some that, you know, as we still have, there's always a difference of opinion. Uh, a lot of the ladies loved it and got on board. The, the publication Lily went from 500 subscribers one year to 4,000 subscribers the next. And it was, I think it's a moment in, in history where you really see women getting excited about being out of the home and not necessarily neglecting, but embracing the voice and their capacity for making a difference in their own lives. And they really got excited in that respect. So you had a, a, a large upheaval of, of that sect of women. And then, of course, the traditionalists who felt like this was just way over the line. And unfortunately, you know, a lot of men, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to make it a gender issue, but in a lot of cases, it was men saying, well, why all these women want to be men. It became an attack where it was, that was how they were delegitimizing the the movement was saying, well, it must be not that you want to empower women, but that you just want to be us. Um, which, you know, I think then you're having to battle a completely different issue. So it kind of took, it, it, it unbalanced or knocked them off the platform a little bit when they're now having to say, no, 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 it's not that we want to change gender necessarily. It's that we just want more freedom in our own clothing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense that maybe if it hadn't been 
happening at the same time as the women's rights movement. You know, if Amelia Bloomer had already moved to Iowa when she starts the Lily, instead Mm -hmm. of it being also Seneca Falls and kind of tied to this reform for women's rights, maybe Mm -hmm. if, yeah, if it's separate, maybe people wouldn't have been bothered by she's wearing pants because you're right. They're not form fitting. They're not. No, they're not. They're not, you know, they're not masculine in any way, but that sort of that say kind of a low blow of, of just labeling it as, Oh no, it's not, you know, you just want to be us. You don't want to, to make you better. You just want to take, you want to take our place because you, you envy us. Um, became one of the the major um, one of the major tenets of anti suffrage even uh, through you know 1919. So it certainly wasn't something that went away. And we even still we see you know even modern day women in the political sphere get chastised for their pantsuits. Yes. So you know, <laughs> I mean, it seems a little ridiculous that that's. That really, that's your strongest case. Okay, <laughs> but it it started it started with Amelia Bloomer, who honestly she and she said it repeatedly. This was not her concept. She was just the first one to take it public and say, "I like this look." Um, so, but Bloomers became Bloomers just because she was the most notable, right? And it's a great name. I mean, it kind of fits. <laughs> it does it works? <laughs> Um, so did like fashion magazines at the time, I mean, did Sarah Hale include patterns in her magazine for, Um, you know, I think anytime you have a a transition or a shift, you know, there are a lot of, actually, there are a lot of historians that say if this look had come from Paris or London, or if Queen Victoria had put on a pair of bloomers, Mm -hmm. it would fine. Um, so you do see, absolutely, fashion was dictated by fashion plates and fashion magazines. It's one of the things that myself as a fashion historian reference back to. Um, it's it's difficult to work with those patterns, but you no, know, those patterns were coming into the U.S. We were importing the cutting edge of fashion from the very beginning. So yes, they were widely widely publicized, but a lot of people like today the majority of people aren't necessarily going off of like Vogue's fashions, but certainly flipping through those pages and appreciating them. So I guess to draw things to a close, um, one of the things I ask everyone I interview is to think of their subjects in a more 21st century way. So, you know, imagine uh, Amelia Bloomer has an Instagram account. What sort of uh, hashtags might she use um, or any of the reformers use to to promote themselves? You know, I think that's a tough one because Amelia Bloomer, she became sort of the figurehead for dress reform, but it wasn't necessarily what she was, you know, she, she wasn't the dress reform lady. She, she was kind of saddled with that. Um, I think she might make a larger statement about women being educated and um, progressing, you know, their place in in voting rights and whatnot, and then maybe close it with hashtag forget the hoops, 
or something to that effect. Um, maybe Mary Waters, who was a, a doctor during the Civil War, who donned the full Union officer's uniform, including the pants. Again, she would have said something to the effect of, go to school, be the best version of yourself, hashtag pants don't matter, or wear pants if you want. <laughs> uh, I I, at least from, from my perspective, I don't see, I see them being attached to larger and sort of bigger concepts of, of social change that they were trying to affect. And dress reform was kind of their, their way of standing up and saying, I can make my own choices. And, you know. No, that makes sense. I know uh, Stanton gives it up, um, although continues to wear um, the Turkish pants at home. But kind of the, I have so many other issues, I don't want to fight with people about this. Right. I think that's good to remember. It was, I can't think of anyone where it is their their central identity. Yeah, yeah. I mean, these women were were fighting such massive causes. Um, And I think it, the fights against those causes, the fights against women's suffrage, the fights against them, you know, them having voices in the abolitionist movement. It was, it was sort of the weapon that was used against them was, oh, and you're also wearing these pants. But it wasn't, it certainly wasn't their focus. It was the focus that was placed on them by, by adversaries, really. So um, they, they were, they were incredible. They were warriors for, for all kinds of different, you know, different progressive things that they wanted to see in the world. So if someone wanted to condense their criticism of, of dress reform into a hashtag, what might they have said? And that's a tough one. Act like a lady. Yeah. I think, I think that would be it. Act like a lady because the, the notion of, um, that that gold standard for you know a woman takes care of the home and she she maintains social morality and she's the compass for all good things that is a perfect lady and anytime you were acting sort of out of the box you were you were sort of you, you know you were bringing bad light on on the, the concept of just being a lady just just be a good girl you know you know yeah. so i think hashtag act like a lady would be a good way to really kind of stick it to them and and minimize everything that they were trying to do no i like that well i don't like it but i like it as the hashtag <laughs> <laughs> thank you well thanks so much for being with us today i think um you know one of the things i believe is so important when studying history is studying all aspects, you know, um, presidents and generals are important and, mm-hmm. and can be interesting, but they're such a small segment of, of the population. And in some ways, I think even a small segment of, of what is power, right? And so looking at the, the lived lives of, of average people, people in the margins, even, even the elites, but seeing how their, their experience is different and influences their lives, I think is, is so important. So I really appreciate talking to you today. Well, thank you so much. It's a, it's a subject that I am passionate about and there's so much more. We could sit here and talk for hours, um, but I'm hopefully sparked an interest in, in a few. Thanks so much for having me. 
Contextualizing the Past was created by Susan Stanfield, Assistant Professor of History at the University of Texas at El Paso, and is produced by Adrian Mesa from UTEP's Creative Studios. Thank <laughs> you.